Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. is playing for the national title. It's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com, part of the Sports Illustrated Fan Nation Network, with episode 94 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast, presented by Bet Online. In this episode, we react to new Orange head coach Fran Brown's introductory press conference. We go a little bit off topic to discuss Florida State being excluded from the college football playoff, react to Syracuse men's basketball's loss at Virginia, and then I go through a little recruiting roundup to let you know which elite prospects are expected on campus for official visits this coming weekend. The holiday season is off and rolling with NFL in full stride and the NBA and NHL hitting midseason form. Bet Online is your number one destination for all your sports wagering info. With up-to-the-minute sports wagering news, odds, trends, and predictions, BetOnline is the top spot for everything pro and amateur sports. And not just the big four, BetOnline has info available at your fingertips with both, both desktop and mobile access at any time for almost any sport that's played. From MMA to international soccer, head to BetOnline today and remember to use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. So Syracuse has a new head football coach in Fran Brown. He was officially introduced to fans and media on Monday. And I was there to take it all in, as was Sydney, Josh, and Griffin, all of our usual suspects on the pod. So we're just going to kind of go around the room and get everyone's main reaction or main takeaway from the introductory press conference. I guess it's a two-parter. One, your number one takeaway. And two, do you think he won the introductory press conference in terms of getting fans and and everyone else excited about the potential future of Syracuse football? We're going to go to you, Sydney, to start things off. I felt like the atmosphere. I mean, first of all, it was standing room only. Um, for the very first press conference, which obviously I haven't been at the others, but I thought it was a terrific turnout. And it felt like he had won over the crowd by the end. Um, just tons of applauses. I could hear the people behind me saying, you know, we really like him. But I felt like it was the most genuine interview that I have heard from a head coach in all of collegiate sports in a very long time. I didn't feel like anything was scripted, which I think so easily could have happened, especially in a new situation. But it felt like everything he was saying, he meant with his entire heart. And I think the biggest takeaway I had is just how committed he is to this university already and to the whole community. I think that's something he stressed on and on about how you were going to see him in the, com- in the community, not really for the TV, 
But when no one was looking, he was going to, you know, be helping clean up the streets. He was going to be at the YMCA, the Salvation Army. And I think when you have someone who's that dedicated to a community, you know, they're not just using Syracuse as a stepping stone, but he's truly committed to investing in the community and wanting to grow his family here. He said his daughter, too, he would love to see her be here until she's 12, 13, and then he steps away for football. So for him, this is home now, and I'm excited to see all that he'll do because the love for the city's already there. Yeah, I, I can tell you that that type of turnout is not normal for a typical like game week press conference. It's it's not. Now, when Dino Babers was introduced eight years ago, whatever it was, um, you know, usually when there's a new head coach that's introduced, there's it's a, it's a pretty big event. You remember when Adrian Autry was introduced as new Syracuse men's basketball head coach. Now that was a little bit different in that that wasn't a firing. That was a Jim Beheim retiring, but still that was a big pomp and circumstance. They had a bunch of people there, alumni, you know, higher ups and boosters and all of that similar thing here. But I agree with you in that you said that he spoke from his heart. He mentioned right at the beginning, I, I'm, I tried to write this speech. It doesn't come across as genuine. So I'm just going to speak from my heart. He made that comment from the beginning and other than once or twice looking down, it looked like he had kind of prepared notes of like, make sure you hit a couple of these topics. Other than that, he just spoke and looked at all of us in the eye. And he was not reading from a statement or something that was prepared by, you know, legal people, which always sounds terrible uh, or PR people or whoever it is. Uh, so that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Griffin, your reaction to the press conference. I think how he was able to captivate that audience that was not just media members. It was other coaches for other teams, and it was donors, and it was boosters, and it was all the other staff and administration with Syracuse Athletics that they were all bought in for the entire time that he was answering questions. He had the floor, and everybody was so interested in what he had to say. And it was, like Sydney said, from the heart, but it was so authentic regardless of the topic. So many of those topics that were talked about most coaches shy away from, but he was completely transparent. And I think that says a lot about the character person that Fran Brown is from day one to have those difficult conversations, just to set the record straight of how this is how I'm going to be. I'm from Camden, New Jersey, talked about his upbringing that for a lot of people goes the opposite way, but he used that as fuel to get to this point that he is currently at and a 15 year journey of a coaching career now to finally be able to steer the ship of one program. I think it's pretty awesome to see uh, overall. I, I did get a sense of <clears throat> maybe Coach Prime in him a little bit because he was able to have that larger-than-life persona, but it was in almost a better way than I could have thought because it wasn't over the top. It didn't feel gimmicky. It was truly who he was. So I do think that he won the press conference without a doubt today. And it was very humble too, right? Yeah. So that's that's another part of it. And um, it, to, to your point about the other – coaches that were coming women's head basketball coach Felicia Felicia Leggett Jack was there men's basketball head coach Adrian Autry was there former men's basketball head coach Jim Beheim were there I'm sure there were other uh coaches for other programs there as well I just didn't happen to see them I, I Ian only, McIntyre was there too. Ian McIntyre was there uh you know Gary Gate may have been there I didn't see him uh Kayla Trainer may have I I didn't see her but again I didn't see everybody was there I I only saw you know a certain number of people but that was that was definitely a community thing, and and I think he uh, he won everyone over, as you said. Josh, your reaction to the press conference and um, if you thought he ended up winning the day, so to speak. So 
first of all, most definitely, I think that it was um, a very significant um, win in terms of his introduction to the program and kind of laying down those like foundational pillars of what he'll, you know, his tenure will look like here. And, um, you know, A, all of us haven't been former Division one athletes, D2, at a much higher level than myself. We've all um, been recruited. We've all had coaches talk to us and, you know, sell us a dream and kind of bust that, burst that bubble in a sense once we actually get in the program. And we've all had, um, you know, like I said, just that process of, you know, coach speaking, coach cliches, where the coaches express things and not necessarily that being a foundational principle of, of what they are. But I think that, like both Griffin and Sydney said, and, uh, you know, part of our job as being media members is I feel like it's having like a little bit of pessimism to a certain extent, like to be able to read in between the lines of, you know, what is real and what's not. And I think that the excitement level that us three in particular have being former Division I athletes and really realizing or seeing, feeling that uh, authenticity, that intensity is the word I've been going back to all day, I think is really uh, telling about. Um, not only the excitement that was in the room, like you usually don't have people hooping and hollering at a press opening presser like there was like it's not a concert, but also like it didn't it, again, it did not feel like superficial. Like he won the press conference in a way that it didn't feel like a salesman. I know Griffin said a little bit of like Dion and um, I'll, I'll lean against that a little bit because I feel like. Dion can be very performative. Dion can be very um, out there in terms of selling a product and knowing that it's going to be a lot different once you come within those walls. And I, I don't think I think that Fran Brown was the opposite of that in terms of like he he was very realistic in the expectations that he had um, for NIL that being you know upfront about you know alum and he needed to get more, but also. Um, you're not having a voice if you're not a presence in the um, at the facilities and at the practices, but also um, the recruiting prowesses. He's, he was, and I think that a lot of coaches lean against it. Like once you become the head man, you do a lot more delegating than you know boots on the groundwork. And he was quick to understand that, like this is what got me to this point. Let me not go away from my bread, my bread and butter. So I think that he showed um, a lot of self awareness. I think that he showed a lot of, like I said, intensity. And he was he was able to be convincing, while not necessarily having to sell a dream. So I think that he won the press conference, but not only won the press conference, but did it in a very convincing way to let us know that, like, I don't think that message that he expressed is too much different than what's being heard by the players and the coaches. Yeah, good points there. Um, you know, I, I want to go to the not performative and the humble part and, and all of that. And I want to read a quote that that he mentioned. Um, he told a story about how his his mom had him when she was 13 going on 14. And that by the time his mom was 21, she had four boys that he grew up on welfare. And, you know, he he used all of that for two reasons. I think once to just kind of give us a feel for who he is and, and his where he came from. But also he said, you know, I'm good. Like, I'm not looking for just the bigger paycheck to use this to go somewhere else. And he made it. I know that, you know, longtime Syracuse fans are going to look back to Doug Marone saying this is my dream job and that he was never going to leave and say this is the same thing all over again. But it felt different. It felt more genuine. It felt like it came from um, a different place than than what Doug Marone's comment did. But the part that I wanted to get to was he made a comment about something that his uncle told him when he was growing up. And it was, um, you know, something that that he's always lived by. And it was, don't ever allow your situation dictate your outcome. And that was something that he he said he preaches to his players, um, essentially going back to his 
situation when he was growing up was being in a poor place and um was was not living in the greatest situation and yet from that he turned it into having a football career going to college for football got a brief stint in the nfl and now he's the head coach of a power five program so he didn't let his situation dictate his outcome i thought that was a pretty powerful moment as well griffin you have another thought yeah to go off of that he also squashed some of the potential red flags that i think a lot of fans had of him not being a coordinator in power five play great point. and the authenticity of that and saying like I didn't want to do that. I had opportunities to go elsewhere to do that, but I wasn't able to actually touch every aspect of the team and not just focus on the defensive end of the ball because he did have recruits that were offensive side positions, quarterbacks, you name it, people on the line. It didn't matter. And even at the defensive backs position, he was able to do all of that. So I thought that was pretty great. And then also that he was the one to reach out to John Wildhack. I thought that was wild because you never hear that, like a, a potential head coach vouching, vouching to get a chance to have a program and to go to a place like that and be like, hey, I'm starting to see my name be in the swing of things a little bit. How about I just tell you from my mouth what I want to do? That was remarkable to me. So I want to contrast that with something that happened when Syracuse was going through the coaching search after coach Paul Pascalone. The other thing that I thought he did a great job of was showing us his connections to the last time Syracuse was a legitimate national, nationally known brand back when coach Paul Pascalone was the head coach when Syracuse was a top 25 team uh, regularly. And so when Syracuse decided to move on from coach Pasqualoni and they went through their coaching hire search, they ended up getting Greg Robinson. And we all know that that was one of the worst eras of any power five program in college football history when he was the head coach at Syracuse. Well, story stories came out after well after the fact, after Syracuse was already beyond Greg Robinson and into other eras that there was someone who was the special teams coach of the Philadelphia Eagles at the time. He had never been an offensive or defensive coordinator. He had never been a head coach, similar to Fran Brown. But he reached out to Syracuse because he really wanted the job. He thought that he could turn Syracuse into a power. He happens to be the current head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, John Harbaugh, who has won Super Bowl championships there. He reached out to then athletics director, Dr. Daryl Gross, and said, I want the job. And Daryl Gross wouldn't even give him an interview. What? Now fast forward to 20 some odd years later, and you have a position coach who says, I can turn Syracuse into a power, contacts the athletic director, and the athletic director actually takes the call, takes it seriously, interviews him, is blown away, and ends up hiring him. And now look at what the what the reaction has been. You're getting elite-level assistant coaches who are known as some of the best recruiters in the country. You're getting four-star recruits who are committed to uh, Pac-12, SEC, Big Ten, et cetera, type programs, taking hard looks at Syracuse and officially visiting before National Signing Day. And it's completely changed the buzz around the program. Makes you wonder if they hadn't made that mistake back then, would they be in the situation they're in now? Now, perhaps it ends up working out for the best because you get Fran Brown and everything sounds great as as we know it right now. But just kind of interesting that you brought up that point and the contrast to Syracuse doing the opposite of that 20 some odd years ago. From there, I want to go off topic and staying with football, but not directly Syracuse related. The college football playoff, the four teams that have made uh, that playoff were announced over the weekend 
They are Michigan, Washington, Texas, and Alabama. Florida State was an undefeated Power 5 conference champion and was snubbed. The committee said that was due to the injury to starting quarterback Jordan Travis. Just real quick, I'm going to go around the room and get everyone's reaction as to whether they they thought that that was a justified decision by the committee or whether Florida State was snubbed and should have been in place of Alabama. Sydney, we're going to start with you. I think I personally feel very passionate about this, just coming from a conference when I played collegiately that I didn't feel was always respected enough compared to like an SEC level when it came to tournament time. And I think if you're a committee and you've laid down the foundation for the years you've had to pick the top four teams and you say three things matter, strength of schedule. Well, Florida State had one of the top five hardest strength of schedules, really prioritized non-conference games. Then you say you have to go undefeated. They did that. And you have to win your conference championship, which they did that. Obviously, they lost their star quarterback. But the fact that they won with their backup and then their backup's backup, like this is an elite team who, if you were to compare them versus Alabama right now, I understand, I agree. I think Alabama has the stronger team just due to injury. But at the end of the day, you have set this precedent and this foundation that I feel like you have to stay consistent because I don't think it's respectful for anyone across the entire Florida State team who was a part of that team who did everything they could to do all of the right things, all the things the committee asked them to do. So if you're going to lay down this, I think you have to make it known at the beginning of the season and not at the 11th hour. And I, my heart just goes out for the entire team, the coaching staff, but also Jordan Travis, who has came out publicly saying, I wish I broke my leg earlier. Like that is crazy to me that anyone is having those thoughts and that guilt and wishing that injury upon himself earlier. So his team could have shown who they were without him, which I think they already did with two games. And not to mention, their backup quarterback, granted, he's not Jordan Travis, but he had an injury that was a concussion that he would have been ready for the playoff. So I just think, yes, maybe this year won in terms of ratings with Alabama and the matchup, but I think down the stretch, college football hurts from it. Griffin, your thoughts? I'm the one that's the most indifferent out of us three. I see both sides of it in the fact that I feel horrible for Florida State. We've seen them all season long do their thing. They did it against Syracuse, and, and they've been a juggernaut all year. Would I also rather see Alabama play Michigan? Yes. And the bigger gripe that I personally have is just with the committee in general being very wishy-washy when it's convenient for them to play their own narrative of what they want it to be. Uh, a few years ago, there was that huge precedent of, we need to get other teams <clears throat> that might not be power five caliber programs in the playoff if they deserve it. They did it with Cincinnati. It was a big dumpster fire. They haven't done it since. Same thing now. It's the fact that, oh, no, it has to be the teams that are, you know, most deserving, not the four best teams. And what I like, there's this always a debate every single year at this time, and it's never consistent year in and year out. And uh, at that point, I'm pretty happy, I think, at this point in time that it will go to a 12-team playoff because who cares if the 13th team is going to not be in it? Like, I don't really care. They'll be fine. They'll play in some other bowl game. But when it's a team like Florida State that might really deserve it, I, I think that is pretty difficult to swallow. Yeah, it's almost unfortunate the 12-team playoff isn't this year because then Florida State wouldn't have to worry about it. They could be upset with their seeding, but at the end of the day, they'd have a chance to prove that seeding wrong. Josh, your thoughts on Florida State or Alabama? 
father's always said for a long time, don't get you only get my dad has said for a long time, you don't get what you deserve in life, you get what you got and you know you earn. Even the family to come to the town twice a year, you gotta pay to get in even then. So I feel like the use of fair and deserve has no place in this conversation. Considering the fact that everybody complained about BCS for umpteen the amount of years, and now it's computers. So we can't complain about the use of computers to be the only determinant, the two determinant teams. And then we have, we add the human element of like humanality and being able to use the eye test and the decipher for deciding the four best teams. And then not and then complain about that as well. I don't think you can have your cake in it too in those circumstances. For me, I'm not undecided about this. I, like I said, I need to get my uh, Southern SEC bias out of the way. Yes. Do I think that Alabama is a far better team than Florida State? Yes. But also, I think that that's part of the job of the committee where you have former football coaches, former ADs, and it's not just a computer totaling of who has the best strength of schedule, who has the best record, who has the best, you know, resume in, in totality. And even I tweeted out a picture um, over the weekend where in the guidelines, the committee has, in one of their key elements with, with all the things, all the parameters that Sydney stated, unavailability of key players in determining whether or not that, that is a deciding factor in the rankings. And you're not going to have a more key player than anybody in the country than Jordan Travis is the Florida State. They barely beat a Florida that was on their second string quarterback in a rivalry game, and they beat a Louisville team that, you know, me and Griffin talked about it. We think that they might have been the worst team to play in the conference championship, depending on how you feel about Oklahoma State. So for me, was everybody would everybody have felt good about Florida State getting a chair to catch getting and getting blown up by Michigan? I don't think that would have been determining of the best four teams or but a determinant of a true champion. Not at all. So I think that, you know, duality is important, you know perspective in his life. Yes, does it suffer for the state? Yes, do they quote-unquote probably deserve to be in the playoff? Probably so, but life ain't about what you deserve, and I think without a shadow of the doubt, they are not one of the four best teams in college football without their quarterback, and I think that's what matters the most. I'm going to I'm gonna say, I'm going to go about it uh, from this angle. My biggest issue with this is the inconsistency in how the committee applies criteria to different teams. Here's Here's my main thing. If the argument is that Florida State isn't as good as Alabama because they don't have a quarterback, then you can't make the argument that they're then better than Georgia with their quarterback situation, which means a committee putting Florida State at five instead of over Georgia at six is dumb. It means that you applied that criteria comparing Alabama to Florida State, but not Florida State to Georgia. Now, you can make the argument, well, after the top four, it doesn't matter because five and six are going to play each other in the bowl game. Well, it doesn't matter. The rankings from the committee's job is to is to do that throughout the entirety of the top 25. The other part of it is they punish Florida State for not looking as good in that rivalry game at Florida, right? Because they only won by nine points. Well, Alabama was fully healthy and played a rivalry game against a mediocre SEC team just like Florida State did on the road against a mediocre SEC team in the last regular season game. Alabama needed a miracle Hail Mary where Auburn just completely, you know, threw up all over themselves with a stupid defensive call in order to win that game. And so Auburn or Alabama did not look good in that game. They were not punished for that when they had everyone healthy. Alabama beat a four and eight Arkansas team by three. They struggled against South Florida. They have struggled against mediocre teams multiple times this year. They lost by 10 points at home. Alabama was not punished for not looking good in those games. But Florida State was punished for 
beating their mediocre SEC team on the road by two scores when Alabama needed a score on the last play on a miracle just to win. Now, I also wonder, in Florida State's last two games, they beat Florida 24-15 to and Louisville 16-6. to In both scenarios, they were in the red zone and decided to take a couple of knees to run the clock out. If they had decided to punch in a meaningless score and they win 31 to 15 over Florida and 23 to 6 over Louisville, do they get in because they won by more? That's my question. And if that's the case, then you're punishing a team for showing good sportsmanship, taking the knee and winning instead of just arbitrarily running up the score because the committee isn't watching all the games and they're just taking a knee. And in the game against Florida, with their backup quarterback, the offense at least looked like a representative offense. I know it looked awful against Louisville, but that was with a third string true freshman quarterback who wasn't going to be the quarterback when they got to the playoff. It was going to be the backup who would have been back from concussion protocol at that point. So it feels to me. And then the last point I'll make with the committee, when they were discussing on ESPN, why Liberty made it as the G five team in the new year's day bowl games, over SMU because Liberty was undefeated, but had the 133rd ranked strength of schedule. Didn't play a single power five team all season. And the response from the committee chair was, yeah, but Liberty just kept winning. So we rewarded them. Well, if just keep winning is the criteria for Liberty, why is it not the criteria for Florida State? So that's my issue is the fact that it's inconsistent with how they applied the criteria to different teams. Now I know Liberty didn't have an injury to the quarterback. I get that. But just keep winning to justify all of the weaknesses in their resume. Whereas over with Florida state, that's not a criteria that strengthens theirs. And I think the, it seems to be this notion that Alabama was beating everybody other than their loss to Texas by like 40 points. And that's simply not the case. If you go back and look at their schedule, Josh, you wanted to respond to uh, something that I said. No, um, I think this, we talking about the, uh, the blanket application of the, um, if the, the committee's um, rules or regulations in terms of how they determine make the determinations. Again, I just go back to the point I had earlier. We cried so long about the BCS not being a true determinant of national champions and not being a true determinant of being the deciding the two best teams based on purely on computer calculations. I think that when you have a playoff committee with humans on it going from four to twelve, I thought that that was part of the reason that we wanted humans in the um, humans in the equation to not have a blanket ubiquitous determination of what's right and what's wrong and you know who you know who's a, who needs to be ready to hit. And I again, I take the Griffin this. On Sunday, I would have put Georgia at five over uh, Florida State. No question about it. Again, sorry that your quarterback got hurt, but you're not going to convince me that, A, a two-time running champ or one-loss SEC champion is better than a Florida State on their second or third quarterback. I really don't care. Sorry. Block Glenn went to my high school. That's the little homie. They were not beating anybody in the playoff. So I think for me, it's just – I know, it's, it's frustrating because, you know, I think we're all college football lifers, and there was just so much backlash about the BCS for so long, and everybody looked at the uh, the playoff as this, um, you know, I guess this uplifting thing that be was a more true determinant of a champion because we had a human element in it, and then when humans decided to do human things, like use the eye test, evaluate a team based on a criteria that they have said before, now it's a problem because it's a big brand name like Florida State. So for me, and the last thing I say is, and let me know if my SEC buyer is coming in too much. You're, you're not determining the national champion without an SEC team in there. 
not even that. A one-loss conference champion, which is undoubtedly the best conference in football, college football. I don't think they'll have an argument with anybody. Or a two-time reigning champion. So I think that you would have been very hard-pressed to determine the national champion and leaving out two teams with those criteria out. Then don't lose. Beat be a Texas team at home. Your place. That that I mean, that's my so I think the human element is great when you have two teams that are power conference champions and they have the same record. Right. But when one is undefeated and one is not, to me, there's no human element there. The undefeated team's in. Now, I'll also say this about the BCS. I was not one of the people crying about the BCS. I liked it because it took the subjectivity out of it. You had criteria. It came up with a calculation. You had to deal with it. And I personally liked that because, you know, I, I look at it kind of similarly to the way I look at the NCAA tournament selection committee in that, you know, how much they mess around with seedings just to get certain matchups that are sexy for television that All the time, right. It's, it's inappropriate. That is a, that is disingenuous and that it taints the entire process because if you have a team that should be a six seed and you bump them up to a five seed or down to a seven seed, just so that they play, their former coach in the first round and you get to write headlines about it. Well, then how you're so much closer to, well, let's move these teams around so that we can make sure that team gets to the elite eight, because that's the matchup we want in the elite eight. And you taint the entire process instead of just picking the field, putting them where they should be one through 64 and they play wherever they play and they play whoever they play. That's, that's my personal opinion. So in some respects, I liked the the BCS because it just came up with a calculation. And again, I think the reason the BCS went away is because you'd get to national championship games without the SEC. The SEC got mad. They yell at ESPN. ESPN does whatever they want. And that's why we're here again. But the good news is next year you won't have to worry about it because every Power 5 conference champion will be in. And then they can decide it on the field. You won't have to worry about it. Um the one thing I'll say against the ACC in this case, I believe it was the ACC that blocked the 12-team player from going in this year. It so, was technically the Pac-12 Big Ten, but it was the ACC who had that and made the vote not happen this right. year because it could have happened this year. So they can be as mad as they want about the process, and I personally agree with them. Uh, and But you did it to yourself by doing that. So you also have to take at least some of the blame in how this all ended up playing out because of the way that you did that. On the not-so-nice side of news regarding Syracuse Athletics, the men's basketball team opened ACC play on Saturday by playing at Virginia, always a tough place to play. And for about the first 10 to 15 minutes of the game, it looked like it was going okay. Syracuse was hanging in there. Uh, obviously, it's tough to score against Virginia, but their defense was was stifling Virginia as well. And so even though it was ugly, it still looked like it was going to be a competitive game. And then the floodgates kind of opened. Virginia got hot from the outside. Syracuse pressed a little bit offensively and, and turned the ball over, couldn't score. Judah Mintz was taken out of the game, and Syracuse ends up losing by 22 points. The lead grew to over 30 points at one point. It was just, uh, we'll say not good and be kind. But uh, your reactions to the loss and where Syracuse goes from here, Sydney, we're going to start with you. I feel like it's been kind of a theme with, again, the games they've lost. Like you said, it starts off close, but then feels like they kind of hit 
this rough patch where the other team gets hot and we just don't have a way of, of stopping the bleeding before it gets too bad. And I think that's something they really need to work on is just understanding controlling of the momentum shifts of when this team starts to get, you know, a big lead. We've had a few games where we've called timeouts, but I just feel like there has to be this shift that starts internally and mentally of just saying like, no more. And I understand it's easier said than done. Um, but we just can't let the separation get too big because then it's too hard to come back, especially first towns and teams like Virginia. It's only going to get better ACC. But I think it really, the problems start even at LSU where obviously it was a good win, but you have somebody like Judah Mintz who, you know, had 33 points and he's your heart and soul of the offense. But besides really Bell, no one else looked good. And the reason why I bring that up, because if you're watching film, if you're Virginia, you could tell in the game, their game plan was to shut down Mintz, which obviously you had Starling who stepped up, had a much better game. But when you're relying on one player to be your entire offense and then he doesn't score well that game, there's just not enough there otherwise. And I think they have to do a better job at understanding the players who there's very few players who I feel like succeed in the one-on-one matchups and they have to find a better collective offense as a whole in terms of how can we create open shots? Because that's when players like Bell and, you know, even Copeland can start to find a little bit more of a rhythm, but there just has to be more working together, that cohesiveness and more passes to create open shots. Yeah, I agree. I Listen, if Syracuse is going to win against now, Virginia is going to be a ranked team when the next polls come out. So this is essentially losing on the road against a ranked team. There's, there's no shame in that. And the three teams that Syracuse has lost to are all legit big time final four contending caliber type of teams. Uh, But other than Tennessee, which was a legit game until there was about three or four minutes to go. um, You were pretty much not competitive for the entire second half against both Gonzaga and Virginia. And the concerning part is, if Syracuse is going to be competitive against teams of that caliber, Judah Mintz has to be special. He has to be the elite level player that we saw him be against LSU, as you mentioned, Sydney. And he hasn't been able to do that against a better competition. That's the concerning thing because Syracuse doesn't have enough players, especially offensively, that can create their own and be that special to be able to to win games against teams like that. Griffin, your reaction and your thoughts on where Syracuse goes from here. Uh, first off, Isaac McNeely, he's a bucket. That kid is really good. I like him a lot. Um, but on the Syracuse side of things, look, in those games that you mentioned when you're playing top 25 talents, uh, Syracuse is close, but they're not there yet. And I think it comes down to a few different variables. They have a severe lack of shooting on the outside and a lack of depth. You look at the players that came off the bench and you only had four guys come off. Kyle Cuffey only played six minutes. So you're seeing a good sample load from Malik Brown, who had double digits. Quitter Copeland played well. And then Benny Williams, you have nothing else right now. So I think they're in a big need of Chance Westry. His timetable does still look like a month out. Um, so he'll be great to have back. But still, you, you have to have other guys step up offensively. And with Judah and JJ playing such a similar brand of basketball, I don't really see them gelling to the point where you can consistently see that duo in the backcourt be like 15 and 15 point guys together because they just play so similar that when Judah's not playing well, well, at least JJ, he can facilitate, he can drive and he can go to the cup and maybe get some points and get something from the free throw line. But if neither of them are hitting their jumpers, like it's going to make things real hard, like a guy for Chris Bell or Justin Taylor on the outside 
their job's already hard as it is because everybody knows that those are the very limited shooters that they currently have. If those guys are off, we're going to see a lot more games like this that are gritty defensive teams like Virginia is because they shut those guys down. And once that lead started to get really big for the Cavs, there was no going back. Yeah, and and you know the to your point, um, JJ actually made a couple of threes in this game. So I mean that was a, a positive in that he he looked at least competent from the outside. But um, it's tough when neither he nor Judah are hitting from the outside because then teams just clog the lane and beg Syracuse to beat them from the outside. And other than Chris Bell, the problem with Chris Bell is he needs someone else to create the shots for him. And so if the guys that are going to be creating it have players sagging off of them, it makes it more difficult to create for them. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of puts Syracuse into a conundrum. Now, I think that this team where it can be really good is on the defensive side of the ball. And I think that means throwing the press out there before it just becomes panic time and trying to speed things up because it actually did have some effect on Virginia a little bit in this game. And so it makes you wonder if when things started to go South at the end of the first half or the start, the second half, if they had implemented it, then does that keep you in the game longer? Does that give you some momentum and do things turn? But the other issue is they don't have a power forward because you've got Justin Taylor playing that spot right now because they don't, Benny Williams isn't there enough to be able to play consistent big minutes for you, let alone start. And so you have Justin Taylor playing ridiculously out of position and he's going against bigger guys, stronger guys, taller guys. And it makes it more difficult for him to get open for his shot. It makes it more difficult for him to crash the boards and it makes it more difficult for him defensively. So it's a tough spot. I I think Syracuse needs to address forward depth in the off season and, and they need to get some better shooting as well. Cause those are two big areas that, I don't see getting better anytime soon. The the other positive was even though they lost the rebounding battle in this game, they at least held their own on, on the, in the rebounding uh, battle. They only gave up a a few offensive rebounds to Virginia. I think Virginia only had two second chance points helps when you shoot almost 60% from three, but regardless. um, So there are some positives that I do see improving, but once again, if this team is going to be good, Things like Judah and JJ and what their game is, I don't see them getting significantly better. So Syracuse has to be more consistent defensively so that they can get out and run where they're at their best. That's that's my opinion on on what they have to do. Josh, your reaction to Syracuse and and where they are now and the loss to Virginia. Um, I'll get I'll get the good stuff out of the way and then you know get up to some of the concerning things you know later on. Um, I don't think that we you know like you said Virginia with Tony Bennett. Always as a coach, but also particularly this year with Reese Beekman, um, Ryan Dunn, like we know what they're going to bring to the table defensively. So, yes, you know, and we're going to be competing with a tw- top 25 team, top 25 adjacent teams like in Virginia. Um, a, you you expect defense to be zeroed in on Judah, but I think that he's the caliber of guy at this point. I think that we're that may be one of his worst games of the year. So I'm thinking that with the increased efficiency of JJ, especially knocking down a three, I, I think that we will be able to see more. Um, everyone, we will be able to see um more cohesion from the both of those guys in the way that you know I have projected. But we have we seen flashes of it in the game. But I do think both of those guys are good enough to where they'll start to put more into conference play that they'll put together 15, 20, 25 minute stretches of cohesive backcourt play. Um, and you talk about 
uh, Benny Williams. Yes, it's kind of discouraging the fact that he was a guy that you thought could be like one of your main three essentially coming into the year, and he hasn't started the game. But this was his season high in minutes. So you talk about him, um, the activity level that he's had, um, just literally just offering the size um, and the versatility defensively that Justin Taylor doesn't have. It was interesting to see. Um, after some up and down in terms of his minutes in Maui, uh, in Hawaii, and even the LSU, where he was only essentially in for uh, blowout time, he did get some first half run. He was a part of that. Um, he was playing while the game was still in question in that first 10 minutes of the first half. So I think that this, that is that was encouraging for me, what you could take away from that. Um, on the back end of that, um, you know, it is very discouraging. We've all kind of bemoaned the shooting, but this team seemed more than willing to take a lot of threes despite them not being a good shooting team. They averaged 24 threes in Hawaii, and this is another game where they took over 23. So I think they were right at 20 and hit five, I think. Yep. So you have to be under, you have to be self-aware of what your identity is on the offensive side of the ball. And I think this team is um, lacking that outside of Chris Bell, even Justin Taylor to this point of the season, has been a bad shooter. You can't continue to give defenses what they give, – give the shot the defense wants you to take, which is threes, which the team is taking a lot of and not making a lot of. Um, and you talked about the defensive side of the ball too, uh, Mike. I think – yeah, I, I didn't think anybody expected to beat Virginia, but giving up over 80 points to a Virginia team that doesn't have a true, you know, playmaker, shot creator, a guy like Isaiah McNeely, most of his shots were a catch and shoot. Like he wasn't a guy that was taking anybody off the dribble. Um, Ryan Dunn, their defensive superstar, he's not anybody that's creating a lot of shots for himself. So outside of the shooting, which, you know, that's just a hard closeout. That's just running somebody off the line. That's just attention to the scouting report. It was very discouraging to see that a team that – they weren't able to break you down in isolation situations. There wasn't a lot of uh, just like good shot, you know, kind of things where you can just good defense, better offense. It was a lot of bad defense from us, from a team that may be one of the least explosive teams in ACC. So a bad defensive performance against a subpar defensive team in the ACC, and that doesn't bode well for terms of, you know, as we're getting closer to conference play, the um, with the inefficiencies of the offense, being able to balance out, you know, getting stops on defense inconsistently. Yeah, Virginia is not a team that makes his, its name on the offensive side of the ball. They are a defensive team that now they're usually efficient offensively. Uh, under Tony Bennett, they have been that. But they have never been a team that scores 70, 80-plus points. That's that's never been what they are. And that's why a lot of people say, oh, they're boring to watch and whatever. And you know they might be to everyone else that's not Virginia. Virginia fans love it because they win a lot. But... It's also why when they get to tournament time, they have games against inferior opponents that hang around and it lends them to being able to be upset because the style of play lends to tends to be lower scoring games, fewer possessions, and that allows inferior teams to hang around. It did not allow an inferior team to hang around on Saturday, unfortunately for Syracuse. But the good news is you get Cornell next and then you've got two I would say similar to what the LSU game was, which is power opponents, but winnable games at Georgetown. But it's a road game, so that's going to be tough. But Georgetown is not a great team. They're okay, but they're not great. And then you have Oregon on a neutral site. Um, I think it's in South Dakota, if I if I remember correctly. Yep, South Dakota. Yep. So, and Oregon's, they're okay. They, they've been decent against some good teams, and they, they've lost some questionable games. So, uh, but that's a game that you can win. They're not to the caliber of what Virginia, Gonzaga, or Tennessee are. So I think we're going to learn a lot about this team and what it does in uh, those two games specifically. On the recruiting front, 
The effects of Fran Brown's recruiting prowess are already being felt in central New York. He already has three confirmed official visitors for this coming weekend, all four-star prospects. The first is edge prospect King Joseph Edwards, who is going to get a closer look at the Orange this weekend. He is down to three schools, including Florida State and Colorado, and is looking to announce his decision on December 19th. Now, the caveat to that is his lead recruiter at Colorado was Nick Williams, their defensive line coach. He has left Colorado and is now the defensive ends coach at Syracuse. So you would think that would certainly help the Orange's chances there. The other one is four-star wide receiver Emmanuel Ross. He is about 6'2", 200 pounds, and can run. Um, I believe he is currently committed to Stanford, but he's got a bunch of offers like Boston College, Duke, Florida State, Illinois, Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan State, Northwestern, Penn State, Pittsburgh, Texas A&M, Central Florida, Vanderbilt, Virginia, Wake Forest, etc., etc., etc. He is a New Jersey prospect, no surprise. And again, four-star wide receiver will be on campus this weekend. Another one that will be on campus this weekend is four-star Texas A&M wide receiver commit, Jalen Hornsby. Now, Hornsby's primary recruiter at Texas A&M was new Syracuse defensive coordinator, Elijah Robinson. So the fact that he is now at Syracuse, that was his primary at Texas A&M. Hornsby is going to come officially visit this coming weekend, and so you would figure that would certainly play into Syracuse's favor, but um, he apparently is also looking at a potential uh, p- potential visits elsewhere. I think Penn State might be involved with either Ross or Hornsby. Um, so keep an eye there. But obviously Syracuse getting these guys on campus to this point is a fantastic start for Fran Brown and, and what he can do on the recruiting trail. And I don't think that's going to be the end of the list. Don't be surprised if as the week goes along, you see more high caliber, highly regarded prospects added to the list for official visitors this weekend. But that'll do it for episode 94 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast. For Josh, Sidney, and Griffin, I'm Mike McAllister, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.